0: Welcome to Your Great Story Podcast, where we chat with founders, leaders, and changemakers to learn about their journey to make the future a reality. I'm Eric, your friendly host. Follow us on where you are tuning in, or find us on any social media channels to catch highlights and snippets of our episodes. Let's be inspired by the stories while you create your great story. Alright, uh, we are back on Your Great Story Podcast and we are in the Investor Series to learn together on investing insights, especially on what startups should look up for when looking for funding. And today I am extremely excited to have Ming on the show with us. Hi Ming, welcome to the show. Hey Eric, thanks for having me. <laughs> a joy, a joy, a joy to have you join us today. So we had, we had Mohan from E27, we had Yang Lim from Forge with us in previous episodes. I'm super excited to learn more from you especially on how you started your company before you became an investor, and also you grew a kind of a zero-to-one business Grab as well. Mm-hmm. Right, so let me take a quick pause here and have you share more about yourself with us
1: onto you, Ming. Okay, right. so my name is Ming. I currently run a venture studio called Crux Asia. What we're doing is we try to build Southeast Asia-focused startups to solve large-scale problems. Right? But of course, you and I connected because I spent some time with Grab. So before Crux. I spent about five years with Grab, building up Grab Renters. So like you said, we launched and scaled this business from zero to one. I would say we were the largest PHV fleet in Singapore at the time of, us, of me moving on to Crux. So it was a really exciting, eye-opening journey, really had the opportunity to kind of build something from zero. And of course, at that point of time, we can talk more about this later, but at that point of time, it was really trying to understand how do we introduce a fleet? asset-heavy business versus what Grab would have been more of a software tech-heavy business, right? So a bit more about myself in, in my background, I spent a lot of time in a whole range of different industries. I was a military officer. I did, then did portfolio management for a short while before moving on to business consulting, and then finally getting into startups. Right? I, ran, I started two startups before I joined Grab. One was an education tech startup that had some legs. Happy to share more about that one as well. Really learned a lot about that space during that time. So one last thing to kind of just give you a good sense of where I am today is I also do a bit of angel investing. And I got into angel investing in the middle of my grad career. I think at that point in time, I really wanted to try and give back to the community and try and like look at how we can contribute to the next generation of startups. So, right now, I'm actually an investment committee member of a network called Angel School, which has more than a thousand angels across the globe Nice nice super awesome introduction thanks for
0: that so let's start let's start there i mean given that i'm a i'm a, I'm a grabber right now right and you're ex grabber so share with us a, little, a bit more about your time at grab and how was how was Grab Rental like in those days right and what are some lessons learned growing from zero to wireless?
1: Yeah, so Grab Rentals was always a very interesting business, especially when we were, you know, in 2015, 2016, seeing the introduction of ride hailing in the form of Uber and Grab into the space, right? And the premise back then was, hey, let's try and utilize the existing supply of taxis or cars to transform the way ride hailing or street hailing was being done at that point of time. So the biggest question I had and many people had was, why do we need to buy a fleet, right? And why do we need to buy cars and go into a business that's completely off tangent from what you think Uber or Grab would have been like? But the truth, and this is something that I also learned, was it's really about demand and supply. And we, Grab at that point of time, had already found product market fit, right? There was already a very clear demand to be able to do ride-hailing through an app. But the problem was there were not enough cars. And in order to kind of match the growth that Grab required to, you know, really meet the demand of the market and market expansion, buying the fleets was actually a very logical and sensible move forward. So that was one thing that I realized and the the importance of what that fleet really meant to the overall growth of the business. Of course, when I came in, it was, like I mentioned, right, not many people had fleet management experience. We had to start from a brand new team. You know, most of us were plucked from different parts of the industry. I would also like to totally admit that I didn't have any car rental experience. I think that's both a plus and a minus, depending on the person. I try to keep an open mind to it, right? The ability for me to bring, I always say, a different lens to a traditional business, I think that was super helpful for renters and also myself as a learning because that meant I wasn't constrained to past practices and I could kind of learn and think of new ways of doing business without any constraints, right? That was helpful. But of course, the downside could be like if I didn't have the right kind of support, I would have been very slow to get the team going. But that's where I was super thankful that the team was really, really strong. We had very strong industry players come in to form the core team that had maintainer's experience fleet management experience, even customer serving experience, right? One of my key managers used to run a restaurant. So she also knew how to kind of look at customer service from a very different lens. And, you know, bringing all these talents together was really helpful in in building up the business. So I think that's one key thing that I picked up when doing the business and that it was really, why was this important? And how do you kind of build a team to kind of scale on that? Got it. Got it. Yeah. Super.
0: Exciting, isn't it? Right. So, I just a mention about a team, right? Bringing a team together in Grab to grow the Grab rental business. Why don't you take some time to share about the culture? Mm. I mean, back then, right? What was the culture at Grab?
1: Well, I think one thing that attracted me to Grab was definitely the culture. You, you know, I was very, coming from my background, I believed a lot in teamwork. I believed a lot in having the right kind of leadership and the right kind of people to really execute on any idea. So teamwork and team and culture was really important to me. I was very glad to see those who were very strong, positive elements in Grab. And that really kind of gave me a lot of conviction that this was the right place to be, right? So I'm not sure if you remember, or maybe you weren't around, but at earlier stages, we used to have these seven core values. And, you know, the whole Grab friends forever came from that. The whole, your problem is my problem came from that as well. I know we have changed and moved on to the four H's, which I think is probably what is the current core values. But I think it was really interesting to have those set of values because those were easily articulated and those were very easy to connect with, right? You know, like BFF and GFF, people could understand that very easily. And it really allowed us to translate those things down to the team, right? Because we also had very young energetic team members coming from different parts of society, different backgrounds. And having those core values form the sense of the culture, form the center of the culture really helped drive things forward. And one thing that I did try to kind of take on on my own was I've always seen Grab renters as a slightly different part of Grab because drivers would use Grab to make money as a platform. But drivers will use grab renters as a place to rent a car. So they see grab renters as a cost center. So in other words, the way we looked at our drivers is slightly different from how grab as a whole would look at the drivers, right? To us, we were definitely providing a service, an asset, and that asset has to be reliable. The minute the car breaks down, they will lose two, three hours of earning income, right? And that meant that the team needed to understand that the drivers were a lot more dependent on us. Not just, you know how bad it is when the app goes down and the drivers will complain, right? But we will have times when when, when a driver gets into an accident or when the driver's cars break down. It's a lot more personal to them because they are going through their experience themselves. They don't have anyone to share with and only they themselves are getting their income affected, right? So I had to double down on the customer centricity that we also talk about in Grab with our team and our drivers. So these were some of the things that we looked at, both at the Grab level of culture and, of course, within Grab renters. I think one last thing I can add to that is, as a business, we were responsible for very expensive assets, right? You know how cars are so expensive now, right? But back then, they were slightly cheaper, but still a very high expense. And we had to pay very careful attention to how we were looking at the financials behind the business. And that also meant instilling a long-term discipline in both teams, right? Operational teams or commercial teams, right? How do we set the right kind of prices that make sense for the drivers, but also for the business? But how do we build operational processes around serving the drivers? For example, we didn't used to have standby cars available for drivers who had a breakdown. But we knew how painful it was, right? Once the car's down, it's three, four hours of lost time we would immediately send a replacement car over to the driver, right? And so he or she can be on the road, you know, within one hour of reporting a breakdown. So these were the things that we, we looked at, like, from a cultural kind of view and how Grab built this overarching culture and how we kind of looked at it internally as a team. Got it. Yeah, I think, I think the main point you kind of drive is really
0: reliability as a service. All okay. right. Yeah. Right, reliability and scalability, right, and trust is a really building trust with the drivers. I think, I think that's where it's super important as a business or for every business to build trust and this whole strong bridge, right, uh, with, your, with your partners. On the point of pricing, right, obviously it's going to be different these few years with the, with the COE going up to 100,000, I guess, right, with getting acquiring new cars. We could spend like a few pesos talking about <laughs> pricing for cars, but <laughs> just winding back a little bit, right, just like I mentioned about team at Grab, right, which is the positive culture. The grabbers come together. And I mean, last month in June 2023 was a painful month, right? Where things happen, when when there is a layoff in Grab. And thanks to you, I think you, you have created to share with community the list of companies they are hiring as well as ex-grabbers to look at food for
1: opportunities. So share a little bit more about the motivation behind that. Yeah, so I think my time in Grab really... I think I'm indebted to Grab on on a lot of levels, right? I had the opportunity to do something that I really liked. I had the opportunity to work with really strong leaders and really great team. And, you know, Grab will always be a very large part of, I would say, if you look at my career, it will be a very large part of my career, right? And besides my time with SEF, which I was bonded, so that's eight years, Grab is the place that I spent the longest time with in terms of a company. So I think that connection was very real to me. And I, myself, we had to go through another RIF sometime in 2020 because of COVID. That was also a necessary move. But that also gave me, back then as a leader and a manager, we had to execute on the RIF, right? And we had to make really painful choices. So all these things etched very deeply in my mind. How going through the exercise, how the team felt after it, how the impacted grabber felt after it. And I, I can feel that around, you know, this second time, because it's so much bigger, it's, you know, a lot more people are impacted. So I think to me, that really triggered me. It's like, hey, is there something that we can do, right? And the truth is, it's not hard to kind of think about it because people who are impacted, there are a few things that they look out for. And know most of them would want to have that continuity. Where else are the opportunities in jobs and roles for them, right? And that was a very quick and easy thing for me to kind of try and pull together. Uh, The great thing is, thankfully, with the startup industry and the ecosystem being so vibrant, there are constantly plenty of companies that are hiring, right? And that really allowed me to kind of put some of these things together. We are currently talking to a few other impacted grabbers on what else can we do. I think there are some more nuanced situations that could be a little bit harder to handle, that it's not just like one size fits all we are reaching out to those grabbers as well to try and see if there are sessions that we can do or just try and find out what exactly their situation is like and and how we can help. Yeah, so that's kind of like the motivation behind it and just getting people to get back into moving on, right? Because emotionally and psychologically, I, I can imagine it can be quite hard to handle. But the truth is it doesn't, you know, such an exercise doesn't really reflect the individual's capability or talent, right? It might affect the confidence for a short while. But, hey, I feel there's just plenty of opportunities for folks to move on to. And this is a great pool of talent, right? Coming from a great brand name, there's many opportunities for folks. And I just wanted to kind of let them know that that's the case, right? And, and don't be too bogged down emotionally or affected by it.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and it's also kind of staying positive, And with opportunities out there. We start growing. And it's a greener pasture, perhaps, where startups are growing into, into new verticals and new, new space. So speaking about startups, yeah. by the way, happy to support anything you are doing, right, in terms of getting XGrabbers. Thank you. Thank you. We'll definitely reach out to you as well on that. Yeah, Awesome. Awesome. Yep. So talking about startups, so just shifting gears to just like I mentioned about education tech, right, that you were, you were starting a company before. Share with us a bit about, about a journey about starting a edutech
1: startup. Okay, so the is called Tutate, and I started this around, I would say, 2010, 20, maybe 2010, 2011. So I would say pretty early, right? And you mentioned yourself, you were part of the NOC batch in 2011. I think you also kind of saw that early nascent stages of startups. Block71 wasn't even created until 2011 itself, right? So that's right. I would say I was super early and, and and that's two problems. One, the maturity of the ecosystem was definitely not far from what it is today, right? And secondly, I obviously was also very naive, right? You're Not knowing about about what the space is like, you know, how to do fundraising, how to do product development. All of those things were something that I had to learn, I would say, painfully and, you know, step by step. But what really motivated me was I am a builder and an operator at heart, right? And I've always wanted to see how technology can be used to change the way things are being done. I'm I'm a bit of a, I can't stay with an existing system. I always try to look for efficiencies. I try and look for things that can be made better, right? So putting all these things together, it was really a self-discovery journey. Like, you know, how do you go about building something that people don't really know whether they need it or not, right? Maybe to also add one more dimension. This was also kind of the time when iPads and tablets were taking off. And we had a very simple idea of just trying to digitize assessment books. And this was, you know, 13, 15 years ago. And with the iPads coming in and we wanted to change that. So it was really naive. It was a self discovery journey. We went into the space but of course, very soon we started to learn about like how customers were responding to it, what were the options available to us, why they didn't like the product or what they liked about it. And, you know, the whole idea about pivoting, that was something that I had to learn you know, firsthand as well, right? You know, the minute you see resistance from customers or users, you had to kind of figure out what exactly was going on and what they didn't like about it. So that was also something that I had to pivot multiple times throughout that journey as well. Mm.
0: So tell us a bit more, right? So double clicking on the pivots. How do you wrap that up, right? Yeah. Like a few
1: pivots. Yeah. So like I said, right? The simple idea was really just starting off with digitization, and we quickly learned that when faced with the options of a physical book and a digital book, and you're talking about assessment books at this point in time, pure digitization just doesn't cut it. People want to have something they can feel, they can write on, they can actually you know flip through, and so. I learned early on that just because you can go digital doesn't mean you should go digital. So that was the first thing, right? And secondly, what I learned out of that, when it comes to any business, brand trust is critical. And you mentioned this just now, right? Getting loyalty, getting trust is something that you can't shortcut. You cannot buy. It's something that you really have to cultivate over time, over engagement, over people using your products or services and trusting you along the way. And education is one of the spaces that I feel takes a long time to build brand trust because you know how sacred this education journey is for Singaporeans, right? You know, we have our PSLE, we have our O-Levels and A-Levels. And yes, we have two train programs now and IB. But it's a space that I would say customers, aka parents, don't want to take risks right? You need to have a very solid brand name. People trust you. You've been around long enough as a brand. And that was one thing that didn't work in our favor, because as a startup, we were very young in the space, right? And we didn't have any track record. It was difficult to convince parents or even teachers, which we pivoted to different customer groups along the way. It was difficult to kind of get them to trust the brand, right? And so coming down to pivots, that was when we realized parents were very difficult to address. And people didn't like uh, digital versus physical. And that's when we started pivoting towards a learning management system and started talking to tuition centers and teachers. There were some successes there. I think that's when we started slowly getting traction. But I think that was also a time when we were coming on to a lot of existing players in the space and providers who already had learning management systems. And they were very well entrenched in the sectors that they were in. So while we were gaining traction, what we learned was to fight with the big boys is a whole different set of rules and games, right? Once again, you needed the capital, you needed the presence, and you needed early adopters to kind of push that and grow. So that's when we did our third pivot, when we started to introduce analytics into our platform. And I think that really made a difference because analytics was something that was also, once again, very early stage at that point in time. I'm now talking about 2013, 2014, right? You know, now you have AIs and you've got very good platforms that are able to provide an AI layer to assessments and, and analytics. You know, when we came into this it was really early stage. But I think the analytics angle started to make a lot of sense and, and there was a lot more value and combining it with the Singapore content, I think that's where people started seeing, hey there's some lakes here, right? So we kinda of went through three broad pivots throughout that journey during that time. Wow. Wow, wow, yeah. So I think just, just going back a little
0: bit on you mentioned about timing, right? It was early, right? It was kind of early, right? Back in 2012, right? 2013. <laughs> when you say right, iPad just, just came out, right? And it's all about timing. That's one. And then you had a three kind of broad, big pivots and you were constantly trying to find a unique value prop, right? Yes. For example, analytics, building like graphs to and then inform them like what was working better or from a learning management perspective, right? what's better, to reinvest perhaps, or to yeah. connect to parents perhaps, right? So thanks for sharing what you learned in your startup journey. And I would like to touch on investing, right? but before that, right, so given that you, you were a founder of edutech companies, what's your view on today's edutech startups? And what's your view
1: in investing in one of them and why? Yeah, yeah so I used to take a little bit of a once-bitten, twice-shy kind of approach, right? But I allowed myself to have a bit of an open mind to kind of look at where the space is today. And I feel like fundamentally at the core of it, education requirements have not changed, right? I think there is a need to excel for better or for worse, even though I do agree on some levels that we need to teach our next generation of leaders and workforce different skill sets, but there's still a need to kind of ace the exams, right? And... I think this is something that ad tech players have to either accept or understand that that's still the core job to be done. Um, having said that, I think AI, like I mentioned just now, right, there are currently uh, plenty of folks introducing AI into learning. And I think that is a good time because the space has matured to a level where they can can accept this. You know, One thing that is different from what it was 10 years ago was people are a lot more skeptical about using technology to distribute their educational services, right? It was a very personal kind of like there's a teacher or there's a very strong educator behind the brand that stands for something. But people are a lot more warmed up to technology being part of that solution. So I think edutech startups today have a stronger foundation to build out of But I think they also need to still understand the job to be done is a very nuanced job, right? Yes, you want to kind of ace the kid in your exams, but there's also a very root way of learning to get there. And do you want to be a purist in trying to solve that? Or are you kind of take a more branding or more marketing approach to say, hey, I've got something a little bit better. It's a bit of a toss up there, right? I've seen players trying to focus on a little bit of both. But what I do see is the underlying core technology has started to be more accepted in terms of analytics and AI. That is definitely something that I see as a trend. Yeah, yeah. I think generative AI is
0: definitely, it's (laughs) mind-blowing. It is, it is. (laughs) Open AI after after ChatGPT came out, it became the new Google, right? It's a two-way thing. It's not just like Google something and then you keep Googling and change my keywords. It's about communicating, like asking the right questions, right? To get the right answer elaborating on that or even streamlining on that right yeah cool Also, awesome. so let's I mean just to talk about edu tech investment opportunities perhaps but let's broaden that more to any investment right just to mention about your major mm-hmm. investor tell us a bit more about your, your investment principles or even some of the common
1: things you look out for for startups Yeah, so I like that question right? because I think we are all individuals ourselves and we all subscribe to a certain philosophy or a certain theory. For me, I, I tend to be a little bit more like starting from what I am in my own kind of like vision I have for myself and what I want to kind of like contribute. And I think fundamentally, I always look for opportunities, products or services that can just uplift people or society. And that is what I do with Crux Asia. But there is also the same philosophy that I apply to the startups that I want to invest in or look at. Right. So companies that are looking to kind of improve livelihood, improve productivity, improve wellness of people. I think these are areas that I want to look at. Right. But having said that, you know that is really just the kind of like industry or solution that you're looking at. But if you start going into what else I look for, I genuinely want to look for teams that really have the grit. Right? they're eager to learn, they're humble in nature, and I think most of all that they are willing to admit that they're not always going to get it right. right. Because as a startup, you are bound to get many things wrong many times. And every roadblock that you come across is a hurdle to cross. And you know, if you don't have the grit or the willingness to admit you're wrong, you're just going to run out of energy or steam or capital or time. And that's not something that I as an investor want, obviously, but that is also not efficient use of the resources that the team has, right? So these are the few kind of things that I want to look at when I try to identify the traits or, you know, or the value of the companies that I want to invest in. Mm,
0: yeah, and just I mean, you started the point of uplifting lives, right? Or even increasing productivity or making life better, essentially. And then what's more important is the team. Right, so, it's mm. the right? Mm. so let's let's talk about the founders a little bit. Right, so for founders starting up,
1: what are common pitfalls? Right, beyond what you just shared. Well, there's just too many. Right, I think that there are a few, and I've I thought about this uh, many times. In fact, you know, I'm kind of thinking about how to kind of process this information. But you know, too many to start with. But I think what I would want to share is, firstly, trying to do it themselves. And when I mean do it themselves, I'm not talking about solo founders. I think solo founders have a certain opportunity for success. It may not be as great as a bigger team, but I'm not talking about solo founders. I'm talking about teams that try to do everything entirely by themselves, right? But the truth here is there is a network and there's a set of partnerships that you need to get yourself or get the startup involved with. And when I mean network, I'm talking about partnerships, commercial or strategic, I'm talking about investors or mentors, these are critical groups of you know, resources that is really important for a startup. And I wouldn't want to invest in a startup that is trying to just wing it by themselves and they, and they don't have this kind of support network around them, right? So that's one. Uh, Secondly, I do see a lot of uh, founders that come to me uh, who want to do a startup, but are not willing to quit their full-time job. Uh, I think that's a red flag once again, right? I like to say that um, if you are at the prototyping stage and you kind of want to do it on a part-time basis, I think that's fine. But the minute you go to market and you are still not willing to you know drop your full time role. I think that's a very clear sign that we, we you know it's it's not worth the capital or time from an investor's point of view, right? I think lastly, and I think this is debatable uh, for some people, but trying to rush a product or a service or a startup into market is also something that I think. A potential pitfall for certain brands and certain companies right back to how we talked about brand trust and brand loyalty some things just need time you could pump a lot of money into ads or seos or, or marketing just to get the brand to where it can be but if you don't have that customer loyalty they just need to go through the journey to get the customer loyalty and that takes time and i think trying to accelerate that without the right resources can be detrimental to the brand right for example, if you try to rush a product out too quickly because you you want to kind of like get to the next version without f- getting customers used to your earlier version, that breaks trust, that breaks usage, and people will start being you know very unfamiliar with what your product looks like or feels like. right So I think these are the three things I would kind of share in terms of pitfalls. Mm,
0: yeah, and I think right call on, on on again back to trust and also timing la, right. <laughs> timing in terms of really not rushing it out but also not taking too much time to make it perfect i think it's an art right like build an mvp but how minimal it is right for a viable
1: product i think that's something exactly that's the right term i think there's a lot about founding is about an art and you know there's art and science and some parts of it is is very nuanced and people need to be able to kind of flow and learn and be creative about the process as well
0: and accepting that it's okay not to be perfect or not too fancy when you go out at the first step. I think that's something that really, really has to be like, you know, accepting that kind of level first. And uh, so.
1: Oh yeah, definitely. Right. The MVP or the prototype you're talking about, right. You know, all the it's a very difficult choice when you have to kind of identify what parts of the product needs to be built now and what parts of the products are too early for adoption or for the market. And that's also art. Like you said, you can't f- always figure out whether customers, really like this or not, there are ways to kind of hack it, right? Or do a bit of validation by testing small little things. And these are small little hacks in, in I think, the whole venture building process and the startup process that, you know, first-time founders may not understand. It's difficult and expensive to learn that on the job. It can be done, definitely, right? And we just talked about why I pick teams that are eager to learn. Because it's really about these kind of real life lessons that when you hit the market and customers respond to your product and that's when you really are able to kind of say, yes, I got this right. No, we didn't. Let's fix it. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. All right. So I mean, given that you have invested in, in
0: multiple companies, do you mind sharing You know, which is the top kind of, company or top investment that you're most
1: proud of maybe? Well, I can't. Say that I have winners or because most of these have not had have any exit. So I've only had one exit so far. And you know, if you put an investment into a startup, you're talking about five, seven, eight years before you kind of see where the outcome is from, right? So we do have one unicorn that is great news, but I think The one that I'm proudest of is actually a smaller startup that has really been able to take the punches and pivot and, you know, and get back on their feet, right? I don't want to name names, but there's this startup that we looked at in the States. They suffered a very big setback a couple of years back where they were close to closing shop. And it was a difficult time for the team. They kind of had to kind of regroup and reorganize. And it was also at a time when they realizing that their initial product was not finding product market fit. But they were able to kind of say, okay, let's put this episode behind us. Let's look at the product again and find where we could potentially pivot. They kind of cut back on their costs. We look at what they were burning. And, you know, I'm happy to say that they've kind of pivoted and found a new direction to go in. And that's something that really, you know, it... It's great to see that kind of grit and that kind of success. I mean, I hope all the best for them in, in the forward journey because it's still a long way for them to go. But just to see them, you know, get knocked down and picked up again, I think that's something that's really wonderful to see.
0: Yeah, yeah actually, actually pretty much relatively common pitfall is that a product love their product too much. And it's human, la, it's human. I mean, we love our production, right? You know, and it's, it's hard to just say let go and move people to something totally different? It is, right?
1: The, the whole emotional attachment to it, people calling it their baby, their kid, you know, I totally see that, right? And I think that's also something that, rightfully, like you asked just now, it's also another pitfall, right? That being just emotionally attached to, to that solution. But I think this is where data-driven, you know, decision-making is super important, right? Before you even put your product into the market, you must be ready to collect the data. You need to identify what are the kind of success metrics data that you're looking for and start measuring against it. And, you know, have a very honest conversation with yourself and the team, like, okay, the metrics are not matching it, you know, admit that something's wrong and, and make the pivot and uh, make that switch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think you very right on the dot. Being, being honest with yourself is, is always a very it's hard, hard thing. Right? Right? It's like, very hard. hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even as PMs, uh, you know, we sometimes we have to be honest with ourselves. And suddenly we, I realize it's a fallacy, right, where, where you invested this so much you have put it so much effort of the engineer's time or designer's time, whatever, right? So, and then after like six months, you're like, oh, you know, should I just take a pause or should I continue to delve into it, right? So that's always a hard decision to call, hard decision to make and yeah, hard call to make. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Cool. As we wrap up, a few more questions to investments. Is any verticals or industries you are kind of looking into This is especially for the founders who might be listening in, Mm -hmm. right? And looking for investments, yeah.
1: Yeah, so we talked about Genitive AI. I think this is something that is, you know, I'm super excited about it, right? For multiple reasons. I used to spend a bit of my career as a semi-professional photographer. I would like to think I have a bit of creative interest in that space, right? And to see how generative AI has changed the way, you know, visuals, photography, illustrations are generated is eye opening. It it really kind of connects to that creative side of me to think about how, you know, photography, video production, you know, just illustration can be, you know, accelerated, high quality, really good stuff. Right. But that's just one part of that's just connecting to, I guess, one, one part of me. Right. But we all can see how. Generative AI is like the iPhone or the iOS of its generation. You know, when the iPhone iOS came out, it really empowered this whole generation of app developers and startups to really build on a platform, right? So Generative AI, to me, it's a platform and you can really enable a lot of great ideas coming out. And that's what we're seeing today, right? We see a lot of great softwares and tools coming out of it. And because a large part of it is also open source, people can kind of adapt adjust and create their own models or create their own purpose, purpose-made purpose solutions out of it. And I think this is something that is, you know, definitely everyone's considering it, right? I think if you're not even thinking about generative AI at this point in time, you're, you're a little bit behind the curve. But I would like to add that it's great that there are tools that are coming out using generative AI, but I think the real secret sauce here is how can you build a strong service that builds a relationship with your end users, It is, after all, just a tool. But if you aren't able to define what the relationship this tool has with your end user, it will just remain one of the many tools in your toolkit. I think that's where people are spending, maybe not spending enough time, or maybe they are spending time. That's why we're not seeing those products come out yet. But the immediate ones that we see are the first generation tool based kind of like copywriting, you know, marketing kind of or visual creations. But that relationship part is really, I would say really will truly unlock the value of generative a i yeah,
0: yeah, I think just building a point in your, in
1: building relationship with
0: the users is what is the right use cases, right, and scalable use cases exactly generative AI. Yeah, 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 definitely, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it. And- of course, maybe six months is not the road, we can have a, another episode on monetization of generalism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I think also. there's so much to talk about in this space, right? Yeah. You build the tools first, but are you able to charge the right price and make money? And you know, everyone's talking about growth versus profitability. And I think yeah. everyone, I think the focus right now is sustainable growth, right? Startups definitely need to grow, but you need to kind of have an eye on sustainability and profitability. <laughs> uh, I think that will be a conversation that people soon need to have around that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're right. Growth versus profitability is always it's always a challenge. You can grow as much as you can, but you can't be profitable or you can be profitable, but you are like a very lean kind of, you know, yeah, top line. Yeah. Cool. To wrap up, what is one piece of advice you know you would like to give to our listeners I mean, who are founders, might not be getting term are
1: uh, trying to cross hurdles, but keep falling down? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think what I want to say is there's grit. There's grit. And there's giving up. And when I mean giving up, I I don't necessarily mean, you know, like calling it a day, but also pivoting. We talked about pivoting a lot in the past hour or so. And like you said, right, that sunk cost fallacy about like staying on the cost, that's grit too, right? But if you think about grit and giving up, I think it's two sides of the same coin. And I think for founders in the situation that you described, right, they need to understand this balance. Like, should they carry on? in the direction that they're going or give up and start thinking about pivoting or what. Every interaction that they are getting is a signal. Whether it's an interaction with investors or customers or partners, right? these interactions are very strong data points. And I think it's valid to take these data points and reflect upon it and then make a call between grid or pivot. Yeah. I like how you kind of frame it and, and, and
0: structure it and even bringing kind of joining the qualitative and quantitative insights from interactions. I kind of like that, that, that framing, right? Thank because, you. Uh, yeah, because all we have is really to understand to talk to, to the users, to the, to the customers, uh, investors, or even partners to understand what their needs are and, and how do we pivot, how do we decide between keeping on, right? Or to give up. That's right. Yeah. Cool. So. If a founder wants to reach out to you, right, for any interest in those investments or generative AI for photography, perhaps interest, how <laughs> do
1: reach out to you? Well, um they can just find me on LinkedIn or they can also reach me at uh, Ming, M-I-N-G at crux.asia. Crux Asia. Crux.asia. So let me repeat that again. M-I-N-G at K-R-U-X dot A-S-I-A.
0: Crux Asia awesome super, super. Okay, I will I will put the show notes so that you know thank uh, you very much to you. Can show you. and hopefully you found, find a startup find your team of founders who is doing generative AI for photography which is your interest <laughs> uh, and thank you for your timing for the past 45 minutes super thank awesome. you for having me it was really good chatting with you thank you thank you alright take care alright take care thank you for tuning in to your great story podcast if you enjoyed this episode please share it with your friends Chase your dreams, live out your passion, and discover your great story.